And then prayer requests. In addition to the ones already listed, allow me to add a couple of others. Tom Alexander, the father of our youth intern, Zach, had several heart attacks this past week, and then he had a stroke. He was in very serious condition. He has been stabilized. He is improved, but the uh, physicians cannot do anything about his heart or will not do anything about his heart until the swelling in his brain is under control, which was caused by the stroke. So please keep his wife, Janice, keep his sons, Zach and Max, in your prayers and how they can minister and how they can be strengthened by our Lord in this time of need. And I believe it was last Thursday, the mother of Roseanne Jones passed away. Her name was Sarah. So be with Roseanne or ask your prayers to be with Roseanne as she and her sister attend to all the details and travel to take care of her mother. And then finally, last week, if you remember in your prayer request, there was one for a missionary named Gene Foltz. He was going to have surgery this week. Gene did have surgery this week. Um, he, she's a, he's a friend of Denise Gabriel. And please pray for healing and for pain management for Gene. Those are my other additions. I would ask you to keep them in prayer this week. As we go to worship this morning, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I would ask you to please stand for the call to worship. I would ask you to join me by, by reading the bold print. From Psalm 32, come and be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart as we go to prayer this morning and as we prepare our hearts for God's word as is our custom we will close our prayer with the Lord's prayer and as we do go to prayer I would ask you to hear these words from the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians the 18th verse praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. English theologian and pastor Charles Spurgeon wrote, true prayers are like those carrier pigeons of old, which find their were home so well. Our, pray our prayers cannot fail to go to heaven, for it is from heaven they came, and they're only going home. Let us pray. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, we bow this morning in this place and the quietness of this hour before you, our Creator. Jesus Christ said that when we pray, we are to begin by saying, Our Father. We are to do everything with our fellow Christian in mind. Lord, we do not live in isolation. We are members of a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Our calling is not to be solitary Christians. In fact, the Apostle Paul told members of the church in Corinth to rejoice when a church member rejoices and to weep 
when a fellow member weeps. Our Savior Jesus Christ no longer goes about in person laying his hands on the sick, the lame, the blind, the children. This work has now been entrusted to us, his disciples, the people of your own possession. We are to be with the sick, the sorrowing, the stricken, the fallen. Lord, it is not difficult for us to know what it is like to be a true Christian. We have but to study, study the life of our Lord. His miracles we cannot repeat, but his sympathy, his gentleness, his thoughtfulness, his unselfishness are patterns for our human imitation. So, Lord, we ask thy forgiveness. For so often we become preoccupied with our own spiritual journey that we do not get involved in this, thy church. We tend to become so focused on what you are doing in our own life that we are oblivious to the suffering, the persecution, and even the rejoicing taking place in the lives of fellow believers. We too often tend to overlook and neglect your people. So, Lord, our prayer, may we have the mind that was in Jesus Christ, place a burden upon our hearts for our brothers and sisters, and may we be aware of their needs. May we pray for them, may we serve them, and we pray you would adjust our lives to your activity in their lives. Lord, hear our prayer. And Heavenly Father, this morning we pray for Elder Ken Abbott and the worship services this Lord's Day. Sustain and encourage him, and may he feel your presence. And grant to all here assembled thy peace and thy provision. Meet the needs of all according to thy divine mercy and will. And Father, we pray together now the prayer our Savior taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I could ask you to follow along in your order of worship. There you'll see the congregational confession of sin. Together, let us confess our sins unto the Lord. O Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sakes suffered death upon the cross, Help us in our living to bear your dying, looking on whom you, ha you have pierced. Help us to mourn for our sins with unfeigned sorrow. Help us to learn from you to forgive, with you to suffer, and in you to overcome. 
Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us and grant us your peace. Lord, in your mercy, remember us when you come again. Amen. Hear this assurance of pardon taken from the first chapter of Matthew and the 21st verse. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This morning, as our confession of faith, we will use the Apostles' Creed. I would ask you to turn in your hymn books to page 845. So I ask you this morning, church, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I would ask the ushers to please come forward if you're going to help with the offering. And as they do, let us pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. And Father, our prayer, our desire, you have so blessed us, both spiritually with things of heaven and materially with things of the earth. May we now, as an act of worship, return to you a portion of what you have poured into our lap. Pass on your showers of blessing to others through we, your people. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.
Here now to open God's word for us is Elder Ken Abbott. Ken. Welcome all in the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jerry offered me the opportunity to come before you and uh, proclaim the word of God in this congregation about a month ago, he uh, basically gave me carte blanche. And for a Sunday school teacher, that's like putting the kid in charge of the candy store. So um, I had a range of opportunities. He even offered to let me continue on in the series in Mark, uh, picking up where he left off last week, and presumably the text before he will resume again next week. Uh, but I didn't really want to uh, steal his thunder, and uh, I figured we'd be better served by letting him to continue his series. But as I went back and looked at the, uh, the previous messages in Mark, uh, I recognized that there was perhaps an opportunity for, for me to come and um, expand a little bit on something that had already been discussed. And so, this morning I will invite you to do a bit of a rerun, if you will. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 again. In the Pew Bibles, you will find that on page 832. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And the individual that I'm going to take a closer look at this morning is that of John the Baptist. Hear the word of the Lord. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. By your word, O Lord, by your holy word, so illumine us that we may know you rightly, that we may worship you rightly, that we may obey you rightly, and so glorify your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I am quite certain that all of you have had the experience of participating in a Bible quiz or a test of Bible knowledge at some time in your lives, uh, perhaps in Sunday school um, or in other circumstances. And uh, oftentimes the questions that are posed in these quizzes or tests are, are rather serious, and some of them might be a little bit of the, in a lighter vein, um, straining perhaps at a bit of humor. Um, questions sometimes come up as, you know, which person in the Old Testament had no parents? Joshua, the son of Nun. Or who was the shortest person in the Bible? Nehemiah. And we could go on, but I'm not going to test your patience this morning with all of that. Um, another question that might occur um, would run along something like this. Well, who of all of the prophets recorded in the Old Testament is the greatest? And if we take a, a serious approach to this, uh, we may uh, begin um, much in the spirit of, of Captain Renault from Casablanca by rounding up all the usual suspects. 
And now Mike is happy because I managed to squeeze in a movie reference. So who might we consider as the possibilities here? A candidate to be declared the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Well, we might think about Jeremiah because he has the longest of the recorded prophetic books. Or we might think about Isaiah, whose prophecy actually contains the most chapters. Jeremiah has a paltry 50, plus four if you want to count lamentations in that, uh, whereas Isaiah has <clears throat> 66. And furthermore, Isaiah had a very lengthy ministry of up to 64 years. On the other hand, Hosea beats even that. Even though he's a minor prophet, he had a ministry that lasted upwards of 70 years. So certainly he might win the rule for he might win the title surely on longevity alone. But then there's the figure of Elijah. He opposed the most wicked rulers that Israel ever had in the form of Ahab and Jezebel. Um, he was taken directly into heaven. He did not die. Um, he had that magnificent encounter uh, conflict with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he won that one rather resoundingly, or shall we say the Lord won that one for him. Um, ultimately, we might think about Moses, of course, um, the lawgiver of the nation, uh, the leader of the Exodus, um, the one in whom God worked most powerfully and perhaps the greatest redemptive act of Old Testament history. Um, and furthermore, in his own words, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses not only described himself as a prophet, but he also pointed forward to the promise of another like himself. We read that he said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses was obviously a model of this great prophet yet to come, this, this prophet of promise. And so himself might be considered to be a candidate for the title of the greatest Old Testament prophet. And then there is an individual whose name in Hebrew is Yohanan ben Zechariah, otherwise known as the Baptist. Now, undoubtedly, some of you are going to cry foul at this point and said, Abbott, you asked for the name of the greatest Old Testament prophet. John does not show up anywhere in the Old Testament. I defy you to show me anywhere in the Old Testament pages where he appears. He's in the Gospels of the New Testament. Well, then how is it possible that you might consider him or you might declare him to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? Well, our redemptive history is not so sharply delineated or demarcated as the human organization of the Bible might lead us to believe. Recall that the word testament is simply a synonym for covenant. So we call the two major divisions of the Bible the Old and the New Testaments, but they are just as legitimately termed the Old and the New Covenants. And the Old Covenant continued in force until our Lord proclaimed and achieved the New Covenant, which is recorded for us in the later chapters of each of the four Gospels. The life and ministry of John the Baptist took place under the Old Covenant. 
But those are simply my words. What did Jesus have to say? What was his regard for John? Well, he was recorded in Luke and in Matthew and a couple of parallel passages that Jesus had this to say about John. What then did you seek? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus quotes here in this passage from Luke from Malachi chapter 3, which is the very same passage that Mark used in verse 2 and 3 to introduce John in the first place, along with a citation from Isaiah. Malachi is the last book in that demarcation, the Old Testament. The last prophet from whom Israel had heard in some four centuries. There had been, after all those years of God's continual interaction with his people, this silence fell upon the nation for some four centuries. And then John appeared. People would have wondered if God no longer cared to deal with his chosen race. And then John appeared. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says much the same as what I quoted you from Luke. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So of all the men and women born under the old covenant, John was the greatest. Greater than Moses. Greater than Abraham. Greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Or Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Who's he kidding? Compared to John, Alex the not-so-great. Or you might consider Pharaoh or Caesar, even, to bring the contemporary example to bear. Yet, Jesus qualified, the most insignificant peon, the, most, the least noticeable person, who through faith in and union with Christ has entered the kingdom of God, this individual is greater than the greatest man ever born under the Old Testament. But as we shall see, though, there is one who is even greater than these. As great as John is, there is yet one greater. Well, there's much more that Jesus said about John, particularly in Luke, and we will be taking a look at, uh, um, well, Luke says about it, Jesus doesn't say it directly at any rate, but Jesus does say more about John later on. Mark particularly deals with this in chapter 9, and because I anticipate Jerry will get there someday, um, I won't today tread on his toes, so you'll just have to wait, or you can read ahead if you like, you have the book, you can read ahead. So who is John? We get these very little snippets here, there, again in, in chapter 6 and again in chapter 9. Um, but compared to what Luke provides us with in his early chapters, um, Mark doesn't tell us very much of. So we can go to Luke. We look first of all that John was an individual who was marked out before his birth as a very special individual. There were two elderly persons 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, advanced in years and childless. They were childless because Elizabeth was barren. You know, immediately we might be thinking of certain parallels. This does this remind us of the situation of Abraham and Sarah, advanced in years, having no children, depending upon the promise of God for that. Thinking, Abraham thinking that perhaps he would have to designate his servant as his heir. And God told him no. There was Hannah. Her husband loved her, asked her somewhat unfeelingly if he wasn't enough, you know, that uh, who needs a baby after all? And God worked miraculously in the life of Hannah to grant her first Samuel and then many other children as well too. And of course, the child of that union, just as the child of the union of Abraham and Sarah through the agencies of God, went on to accomplish great things in God's kingdom. So Zechariah and Elizabeth probably had long since given up on any possibility of having a child, and yet through an angel, God promised them a son, specifically to be called John, although no one in the family had ever had that name before. And this would be one who was specially dedicated to God's service. And God has singled out several persons in this way, marking them by the extraordinary circumstances of their births. I've mentioned a couple already, Isaac and Samuel, but you might also mention Jacob and his unusual circumstances of his birth. Moses, certainly, although his birth may have been ordinary, his survival most certainly was not. Samson, dedicated from the time of his earliest days to the service of God and somewhat inconsistent in his righteousness, but yet the author of the book of Hebrews describes him as a hero of the faith. We have John now, and ultimately, of course, we have Jesus. After the birth of John, when, the, when Zechariah's deafness and muteness had been taken away from him, he had having written down the affirmation of his wife Elizabeth's decision that the child would indeed name John to the consternation of her relatives, um, because they wanted to name him Zechariah. He confirmed that, writing down his name is John, and immediately he became able to speak and to hear again. And out of his mouth, the Holy Spirit spoke a prophecy, which is recorded for us in the very last verses of the first chapter of Luke. I won't go through all of that with you, but I will point out a couple of, of, of aspects that are most pertinent to John. In verses 76 and 77, uh, Zechariah said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in forgiveness of their sins. Not the provider of the salvation, but to give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And furthermore, that you would be kind of the advanced troop, if you will, the preparer of the way. Zechariah and Elizabeth and most of the hearers would know immediately what that was a reference to. Again, the, uh, the passages in, in Malachi. John then grew strong in spirit. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Note the particular aspect. John did not grow up in town. He did not grow up in comfortable circumstances. He was the original nature boy in the wilderness. 
And there is a significance to that, as we will get here momentarily. There is a similar description of the early youth of Jesus, which is recorded for us also by Luke toward the end of his second chapter. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So the parallel is inexact, uh, but the evangelists, particularly Luke, draw between Jesus and John this relationship that is meant to emphasize the link between them. Not to put John on the same plane, but to indicate that they were of a common purpose, working towards a common goal. A team, perhaps, to a certain extent, although Jesus was clearly the captain of that team. And we might think of this, again, also as another example of the biblical argument from the lesser to the greater. If God so uses and exalts John in his redemptive plan, how much more will he use and exalt Jesus? Well, let's go back to the passage in Mark. See what he has to say about this. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So again, he's located in the wilderness, which is the traditional place of encounter between God and his people. Horeb, the mountain of God, is in the Midian wilderness. Moses had fled to Midian after killing the Egyptian man who had beaten a fellow Hebrew. He was keeping his father-in-law's flocks in the west side of this wilderness when the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush, a wilderness encounter with a prophet. Following the exodus from Egypt, the people of Israel encountered God in the wilderness of Sinai and later spent 40 years wandering through this wilderness while continuing to interact with God. God did not abandon them even though they were under judgment. He continued to interact with them and their leaders. David spent much of his life before becoming king in the wilderness, evading Saul, of course. But many of the Psalms that he wrote reflect his interactions with God during this time. Elijah fled from Jezebel and Ahab into the wilderness, where God came to him in the cave after he made the 40-day journey to Horeb. And I hope you note the significance of that 40-day journey to Horeb. Again, an encounter in the wilderness with God in the places that God had traditionally met with his people. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance or preparation. A little thought game for you here. Say that you're planning a party or you're inviting some special guests to your house, perhaps going to be even having a VIP over one or two of them, which of you would even think of hosting without cleaning your house in preparation? You might even vacuum under the heavy furniture and pull the refrigerator out to reach the dust and the grime that's been there accumulating since you moved in. And after all that, the house is spick and span, absolutely spotless, the white glove is dirtier than your house at this point. Would you then greet your guests unshowered and in your dirty pair of sweatpants, the ones that have the dangerous holes in them? Of course not. Baptism as a special cleansing ritual was not invented in the first century. John was not the first baptizer, even though he gets the name. 
Israel had long practiced special washing to make the people or the designated servants of God fit for God's service. Uh, You see these cleansing rituals uh, enumerated in numerous places in in the Old Testament law. Gentile converts to Judaism underwent baptism as part of their being separated from the outside world. John was doing nothing here except in the particular application of his baptism. He issued a prophetic call to repentance, and the prophets were always about repentance. He was hailing the people of God back to his service and worship, turning away from idols, putting away their sins. There's nothing new or innovative in anything that John was doing about that. But what was new about John's baptism was the requirement for a one-time washing for people who were already in the covenant. This is a preparation. There's going to be a special visitation of God. God is inaugurating the next phase in redemptive history. He's going to establish a new kingdom and a new covenant, and it is past time for his people to clean up their act in preparation. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This might remind a few of you of your daughter's weird college boyfriend. He wore a garment made of camel's hair. If you've ever met a camel, you know they're not the prettiest of animals and their hair isn't particularly fine. It's not like silk or anything like that. And this garment, such as it was, was girded around the waist with a leather belt. Elijah wore the exact same costume. If you look in the book of First Kings, you will find that description. John's diet consisted of protein-rich locusts, which is a clean food under Jewish dietary laws, perfectly allowable. Maybe not particularly appealing to us, but uh, it worked for the purpose. And he ate wild honey as well. uh, well, uh, These are simple foods, readily available in the desert, um, and um, sustained him, clearly. John is a pivotal figure in God's plans for humanity. He is, in many ways, the embodiment, the living embodiment of the Old Covenant, the instruction of God's people in God's ways, making the preparation for and proclaiming the testimony regarding the promised deliverer throughout the pages of the written Old Covenant is this continuing promise of one yet to come who would save his people from their sins. So again, it is not outrageous, I think, for me to claim that John is the Old Testament walking and talking, pointing as he did, and it, both do, to the long-awaited Savior. Well, we've had Jesus' opinion of John. Well, what is John's opinion of Jesus? And we have a portion of this in verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John went on ahead. He was the forerunner 
He was fulfilling the role that had been prophesied by Isaiah, Malachi, and his own father, Zechariah. But he points his hearers to another. He's not going about saying, look at me, I am the fulfillment of prophecy. Hear what I have to say. He points his hearers to another. He is not the one they have been waiting for. Instead, as the evangelist John records about the Baptist, John said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. So don't look at the messenger boy, John is saying. Look instead to the message, to the word, the living word, the incarnate word. And the one, of course, the message proclaims. This one is coming. So when Jesus approached John in Bethany, where John had been baptizing at the Jordan, John singled him out, telling others, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now imagine how that statement must have said in the ears of his listeners. After me comes a man who was before me. I'm sure that was cause for all kinds of puzzlements. But the same words could have been spoken 2,000 years previously by Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, as we will shortly see. After me comes a man who was before me. John further says, not only is this one my predecessor in rank and even existence, but he is also mightier than I am, stronger, more powerful, able to accomplish so much more than I can for you. Your sins, Israel, are too great for me, poor John, son of Zechariah, to deal with. I can only offer you a temporary washing and a call to repentance. Your sins, after you come out of the Jordan, they'll be back. But this one, this one that I'm pointing you towards, he will take away your sins and he will separate them so far as the east is from the west. Undoubtedly, John's hearers wondered, well, how can this be? Only God can take away sins. Well, John might have said, maybe under his breath at this point, well, just you wait. So when he preached on this passage a few weeks ago, Jerry observed how dry and dusty was the climate of the eastern Mediterranean lands then and now. And if you walk about on dirt roads and paths wearing just your sandals, your feet get filthy. Well, who likes filthy feet? Especially when you go back inside and you want to relax. You, know, you can't very well put those feet up on the furniture, can you? Well, some of us might try. But um, you can just imagine generations of Jewish mothers conking their sons on the heads with some kind of a cooking utensil, telling them to take their dirty feet off the divan or the coffee table. Uh, therefore, an important aspect of everyday life was the necessity to clean your feet upon entering your house. Uh, many of us have mudrooms in our house for this very reason. We don't want all the dirt from the outside tracked into the house. But the culture of the day insisted this was literally slave labor. This isn't the sort of thing, you know, these days, when you go into your own mudrooms or your front doors and uh, take off your shoes or whatnot, you don't expect to have a, a liveried servant sitting standing there waiting with a bowl of water and uh, a towel or something like that to uh, not just take your shoes off but wash your feet. Well, maybe some of you do. I don't know. I haven't visited everybody's homes. But uh, 
the culture, that was a job designated to a lowly servant. No one else. No one else deserved to sink that low as to take somebody else's sandals off and wash their feet. You know, undo the master's dusty, grimy sandals. You get your hands dirty in the process as well, too. You have to wash and then probably perfume his feet. And only then the master can go into dinner without risking getting another conk on the head from his Jewish mother. John, great as he was in the Old Covenant, declared himself unworthy to perform even this menial, humiliating task for Jesus. In the very context in which our Lord performed the service for his disciples in the upper room, he told them that no servant is greater than his master. John sets the comparison scale between him and Jesus. Jesus is greater. John says he baptizes with plain old water, which deals only with exterior dirt. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, who renews and cleanses thoroughly and to the uttermost. Jesus is greater. Indeed, Jesus is much, much greater. There are several passages in the New Testament that I would like to draw your attention to that expand on this. Jesus is greater than Jonah, Matthew says in the 12th chapter of his gospel. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, like many of the prophets, also preached repentance. And his preaching was successful. The book that bears his name tells us that through his preaching, God won back Nineveh and spared them the judgment that had been threatened. Furthermore, of course, or even earlier than his preaching in Nineveh, he had been miraculously delivered from death. He was definitely in the mold of the prophets of old. And yet for all the significance of the Old Covenant prophets, in whose company Jonah certainly was, Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees that were listening to him that something greater has arrived. In that very passage, our Lord goes on to say this, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This, of course, is the famous meeting between King Solomon with the Queen of Sheba, which is recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 10. With Solomon, Israel had reached a worldly height of glory. It's the zenith of her existence as a nation as far as the values of the world are concerned. All of this through, of course, the abundant blessings of God. They had territorial expansion. They were at their largest land capacity during Solomon's reign. Fantastic wealth. And, of course, God had blessed them with an unparalleled rule of wisdom. Nothing greater in Israel's history had been seen, either before or after that, to that date. But 
said Jesus, something greater than Solomon has arrived. In another encounter with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, recorded later in Matthew in chapter 22, um, Jesus asks them, referring to the 110th Psalm, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, even more than splendid Solomon, his father David was widely revered as Israel's ideal king. His tomb in Jerusalem, whether it's legitimate or not, is up to a certain amount of debate, uh, remains to this day a place of pilgrimage. In the confrontation with Jewish leaders recorded in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus puts this conundrum to them, asking, who do you say the Christ will be? And their answer was the son of David. They were looking for the Christ, the Messiah, to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In Psalm 110, this person is identified as David's Lord. How can it be, then, Jesus said, if David refers to him as his Lord, how is he also his son? And the Pharisees had no answer to this. First and foremost, of course, because they had a completely inadequate, inadequate theology of the Christ. They just didn't understand. Furthermore, Matthew says this interaction put an end to their habit of asking questions of this dangerous, unsettling man. Once again, something greater had arrived. Earlier in Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus told his hearers, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Well, what was the temple? It was the visible manifestation of the dwelling of God among his people. No other nation could claim it had God's residential address. The temple was where all the important interaction between God and man took place. Israelites put such emphasis on their having the temple that Jeremiah complained that they deceived themselves, they were therefore protected from calamity. They just, as a recitation, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the threefold emphasis, that exaltation to the highest point um, that occurs throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah had pointed out they were putting their trust in the wrong thing. It's not the building. It's the God worshipped and glorified there. The temple... In the days of Jesus, of course, it had been constructed by Herod the Great. It was a magnificent, awe-inspiring structure. Certainly, it was worthy to be God's house that any human building could be, the house of God. And yet, Jesus said, something greater has arrived. In the fourth chapter of John, we have the record for us of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And in the course of that, she asks him, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jacob, of course, was the great patriarch, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, having his well in their community gave the Samaritans bragging rights. Jesus did not answer her challenge directly, but instead he observed people would, could drink from Jacob's well, and their thirst would be slaked temporarily, but they'd soon be thirsty again. By contrast, the water that he would provide would forever satisfy. People who drink from his water, from him, would never thirst again. 
a greater water, a greater well, something greater than Jacob has arrived. Hebrews, the other letter of, Hebrew, the letter of Hebrews tells us in the third chapter, for Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses, of course, we already talked about, the great lawgiver and leader of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He was a towering figure in Israel's history, a religious authority that was head and shoulders above all, still quoted as the greatest of all authorities by the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Yet, says the author of Hebrews, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. The lesser does not receive the greater glory. So again, something greater than Moses has arrived. John chapter 8. Lengthy encounter of Jesus with the religious leaders. And at one point, they ask him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Remember, Abraham had lived 2,000 years prior. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, the one to whom Jews looked to establish their special place in God's favor. They who were the, the living fulfillment of God's promises to build a mighty nation from Abraham's offspring, whose numbers would exceed the stars in the sky and the sand on the shores. Again, Jesus does not answer the question directly. Instead, he points, himself, points to himself as the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises to the nation. The promise is one thing. The fulfillment of the promise is something else. Indeed, the maker of the covenant with Abraham is on another plane altogether. And there are hints of that when he says, before Abraham was, I am. The Hebraic name for God. Something greater has arrived. John, in his fifth chapter, says that Jesus told his hearers, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Nothing was more precious to the people of God than the word of God. Paul told the Romans, great advantage of the Jews was that they had the oracles of God, meaning the scriptures. Repeatedly we read, thus says the Lord in the mouths and from the pens of his prophets, the Jews looked to the promises contained in the word of God as the source of their spiritual life. 
Jesus tells them, however, they were putting their emphasis in the wrong place. As great as the word of God is, and nobody's doctrine of scripture is higher than our Lord's, the one of whom the word testifies is greater. The one to whom the word points is greater. And Hebrews gives one of the most majestic poetic summaries of the significance of our Lord when the author begins his epistle with these words, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the author here says, is of course the inspired testimony of the Holy Spirit, finally, all the myriad ways in which God has communicated to men and women by his patriarchs and his prophets, the zenith, the absolute ultimate word to us is his son, the heir of all things, the one by whom the world, indeed the universe, was created the embodiment of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, the one who sits in the place of all authority, dignity, and honor, the one who bears the most excellent of all names, one greater than everything else in all existence, rules from his throne forever and ever and ever. John the Baptist prepared the way he announced the coming. The old covenant recedes. John said, I must decrease, he must increase. It's accomplished its God-appointed task, for the new has come. John, the greatest prophet of the old covenant, pointed away from himself to one greater. And as privileged as John was, he didn't know the half of it. But now he does. And now we do too. So let us worship and give him all the honor, praise, and glory due his great name. Let us pray. Our Father, the richness of the abundance of the blessings and the spirit that we have in Jesus Christ, how great an inheritance. For he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God Almighty was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, so empower us by your Holy Spirit that we may give all the honor, praise, and glory that is due the name of of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.
Amen. Please join me in a closing prayer. Our Father and our God, teach us this, that we may have the mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you have highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to your glory, our God and Father. And it is his great name we pray. Amen.